Hi, welcome to the On Becoming Educated podcast, where I, Pa Vu, will share my experience as a first-generation PhD student. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to let you know that I'm a storyteller, so I try to script out each episode so that it tells a story so that it provides a giveaway or more. Today's episode is the first episode that I'm recording without a full script, so it might not flow as well, and the sound might fluctuate a bit because I'm not quite sure what's going on with my recording um, program. So I hope you'll give me some grace and I hope you'll still enjoy the show. Last fall, when I decided to apply to grad school for the third time, I felt like I was super aware and intentional. I knew exactly what I was doing and why. I understood that grad school wasn't going to be easy, but I had this really compelling desire to go. With that said, I still made many mistakes, and because of those mistakes, I learned so much, and I want to share some of what I learned with you on today's show. In the end, I chose seven schools to apply to. It was a six-month process, and I say six-month because I'm also counting the three months after I submitted my applications um, when I was waiting to hear from the schools. So today I'm going to share with you nine things that I learned um, after applying to the seven PhD programs that I applied to. Number one, it's expensive. The application fees cost anywhere between $90 and $140. And so if you times that by seven programs, it's almost $1,000 just for the application fees. This doesn't include the transcripts. It doesn't include the GRE, which is, I believe, about $150 right now. And the GRE gives you four free score reports that you can send to schools. But if you want to send additional reports, then they're $27 each. So you have to also count GREs, extra GRE score reports and your transcripts and your application fees. And that comes out to a lot of money. So when I was applying, I ended up spending over $1,000 just to make sure that I have all the proper paperwork to make sure my applications were completed. Number two, the GRE still matters a great deal for some programs and for some merit-based funding. So don't do what I did. I didn't start studying for the GRE until two weeks before the test. So I had decided in September that I wanted to go back to school and I scheduled the GRE about a month out so that I had enough time to study. But because I also worked full-time and... I didn't want to take a test. I just put it off and put it off. And the hardest part for me was the math part because I hadn't done math in like a decade. So it took some time to wrap my head around what math is and what the type of math that is on the GRE is really like. Because it's to me, it is, it's not normal math. It's a, it's a very specific type of math. And so learning that specific type of math was a bit challenging And it took some time. And I'll just be quite honest with you, I didn't do very well on the math part. I probably did. I, you know, very well sounds like 
actually really nice, a nice way of saying it because I actually did horribly on the math part of it. But the GRE is, it still matters for some programs. For some programs, it doesn't matter, but for some programs, it does matter. And so I would say put some effort into the GRE and see if you can take some time to actually study for the test, unlike me. Number three, it really matters who writes your letters of recommendation. I applied to five linguistic anthropology programs and they all wanted letters of recommendation from professors and especially professors who teach anthropology. And because I am not an anthropology major, that was very difficult to find. I did end up finding somebody who was willing to write me a letter of recommendation, but I think it would have been better if it was somebody who had actually taught me in their class. I also applied to three education programs, and these programs specifically asked for letters of recommendation from supervisors and people who would be able to comment on my ability to do research in education. And so one thing that you'll find common across the board is that the letters of recommendation, they want them to come from people who can comment on your ability to do research um, in the specific program that you're applying to. So you really want to get letters from people who know you well and can really comment on your abilities and your experiences. And if you're going into a PhD program, you especially want people who can comment on your ability to do research. That is probably the most important thing because that's exactly what a PhD program is. It's a research program. So if you can find somebody or you know you have somebody who can comment on your ability to do research, it, it would be great. What happens when somebody who doesn't know you very well writes a letter of recommendation for you is that the letters sometimes come out disjointed and um, with holes and sometimes the information in there is just not very well written or not very strong because they don't know you very well. So it's really important that your letters of recommendation come from people who know you well. Number four, they say you don't need an anthropology degree, but maybe you kind of do. <laughs> so I'm speaking about myself specifically. I mentioned in previous episodes that I had applied to several linguistic anthropology programs, and um, a lot of them actually mentioned, If actually I think all of them mentioned that I didn't need an anthropology degree in order to be considered for their program. However, the thing that I learned from this whole process is that the more aligned you are with their program, the better. So even though I didn't have an anthropology degree, if I had had an anthropology degree, I think I would have been more aligned with all of these linguistic anthropology programs. I had also applied to three PhD in education programs, and because my whole career has been in education, I was more aligned with those programs than I was with the linguistic anthropology programs. And so that was probably why I was accepted into 
the education programs, but not into the linguistic anthropology programs. So alignment is really, really important. And even though they say an anthropology degree wasn't um, needed, I believe that an anthropology degree would have helped my application a lot more. Number five, when you're applying to a PhD program, one of the questions they ask you or one of the requests that they make of you is that in your statement of purpose or your personal statement, you identify the professors whom you want to work with. And these professors could potentially become your advisors throughout your graduate school experience. So one of the pieces of advice that I've gotten and that I've seen online over and over again is that you should contact these potential advisors and um, make sure that they know who you are and also show that you are interested in the work that they are doing. It's really important that your work or the work that you plan to do matches theirs or complements theirs in some way or form. You want to make sure you select advisors who will know how to support you while you are studying under them. So a lot of the advice is that you should contact them and let them know that your application is coming. With this said, however, I also I want to say that you don't have to contact a potential advisor if you have nothing to say. So only contact them if you do have something important to say. From what I've read, if you're contacting them with nothing good to say, then really you're just wasting their time and more likely than not, they're probably receiving a bunch of emails from other students who also are mentioning just generic things. So unless you have something specific that you want to talk to them about, I would say it'd be okay not to email them. Number six, to be accepted into a program, at least one professor from that program has to want to work with you. So this goes back to number five when I was talking about your statement of purpose and how usually they want, they want you to identify a few professors whom you want to work with. The professors then have a chance to read your application and they decide if they um, want to work with you. And if they do want to work with you, then they make a recommendation for you to be admitted into the program. I've also heard that sometimes they will discuss your application together and see if you are somebody who they could potentially support in their program. And if you are somebody who they feel like they can support, then they'll make the recommendation for admission. Number seven, if they're really interested in you, they'll want to talk to you. If they are going to uh, recommend you for admission, then what's going to happen is they'll most likely want to talk to you before then. So I actually got an email from each of the schools that accepted me or that wanted to accept me. And I had Skype interviews with two advisors who would potentially want to work with me. The programs that I eventually got denial letters from, I didn't hear from them at all. So they didn't um, want to interview me. And I actually didn't hear anything until I just got an email that said, um, you have not been, your application has not been accepted. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you think about it, you're somebody who these professors are going to have in their program and they're going to be working with 
from four to, I don't know, potentially seven years. So they want to make sure that they choose correctly. And a lot of PhD programs also provide money for their students. And, and this, this money could be, you know, $20,000 or more. And if you think about it, you don't just want to give money to some random student who you, ha- you haven't even talked to. And so I think if they really are serious, they want to make sure that they, that they get to know you before they offer you a position to you. Number eight, no matter how many times you go over your statement of purpose, you can still put the wrong school. And I have a funny story to share about this. I had applied to seven schools, and that's a lot of schools. And I spent a lot of time going over my statements of purpose, making sure that I had put the right school in each of the statement of pur- statements of purpose. Even so, I still made errors. When I heard from an advisor at one of the schools that I got accepted into, and she wanted to interview me, I got real excited. So I decided that I was going to go back and look over my application material to make sure that, you know, everything that I was saying to her in person or over over um, Skype was going to be aligned with everything that I had written in my application. And while I was doing this, I noticed that in my statement of purpose, I actually put the wrong school. I actually totally put the wrong school. And of course, I was so mortified when I saw this. I could not believe that I had let this through, that I had submitted an application with the wrong school on it. And I was actually hoping that the professor who, or professors who read this application, maybe, I was, I was hoping that maybe they wouldn't even notice. <laughs> I was hoping that they just read through it and they didn't see it. <laughs> but of course they did. So when I did my interview, I was really hoping that it wouldn't come up because I was so embarrassed about it. And um, of course, it had to come up because it was such a huge error on my part. But luckily, the professor was so nice about it. And she just was so understanding that a student would be applying to multiple schools at the same time and that these kind of errors um, could be made. And it didn't affect the way she felt about my application. She still felt that it was strong enough that she would recommend me for admission. And so um, I think no matter how closely we look at our application, no matter how much we comb through it, there is still going to be some form, some kind of error. I guess the advice I would give is that go ahead and do it one more time, (laughs) do it one more time, and try to pace yourself and spread out um, the work that you're doing so that you aren't highly stressed. I think I was doing a lot of the editing of these personal statements or statements of purpose um, together. And I was also working full time. And so I was really busy. And because of that, I think I um, missed some of the errors that I would have caught otherwise. Number nine, things happen for a reason. So I didn't get accepted into some of the schools that I wanted to get accepted into. But I really believe that things happen for a reason. I applied to a program that I don't know if it was or would have been a good fit for me. 
um, just because I didn't have very much experience in that specific field of study. I also didn't get accepted into some really prestigious schools that I wanted to at least get accepted into, you know, to have the choice of whether or not to go to them. But in the end, I think that things happen for a reason, and I think I still have some really awesome choices. And I just really believe that there is a higher power and that the universe really has your back and that she has a plan for you. And you just have to let her guide you to where you need to be. A year ago, I had put it out into the universe that I wanted to go back to graduate school. And I didn't specifically specifically say where or when, actually, but the universe heard and she really made it happen. I think that as a first-generation college student, what we're missing the most is information. And that is why I wanted to share these nine things that I learned through my recent application process for my PhD program. The truth is that I am still learning every single day as I go through this process, but I am really excited about this whole process and I am excited that I'll be able to share this with you through this podcast so that, you know, the process doesn't have to be so lonely so that when you're ready to apply to a PhD program that you will also, you will at least have some, some guidance because of the experience that I have had. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or the podcast listening platform of your choice to be notified when new episodes are up. If you would like to support this podcast, a rating and review would go a long way. Podcasts with ratings and reviews are more likely to be found by listeners. So I would appreciate it so much if you can take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast. Lastly, you can access transcripts and show notes and submit listener questions at www.onbecomingeducated.com.